This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Oh, hello. This is Benjamin Boyce. Welcome to uh, Conversations with the Boyce of Reason. Today's guest is Carlin Borisinko, who is an organizational psychologist, coach, compulsive knitter, and former Democrat. She's been on my channel before. I've been on her channel before. And today we talk about her experience of the events at the National Capitol on January 6th. We also talk about her criticism of the right and of the left and how we build better bridges to get us through tumultuous times. I don't think much more than that needs to be stated. So without further ado, here is Carlin Borisinko. Do you do impressions with your family when you're sitting around knitting? Uh, Dude, my family people. doesn't talk to me anymore. Come on. No. Oh. <laughs> um, no, no. Well, my husband, I guess my husband still talks to me on occasion. Um, <laughs> no, I do. I do only do impressions when I'm making videos being more hyperbolic than I should be. <laughs> oh, okay. Like uh, you, you make Muppet voices for the people that you're mocking. Is that what you do? Oh, I do crazy SJW voices. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did a voice for Melinda Gates because she came out with a uh, tweet about uh, funding uh, motherhood or funding unpaid emotional labor or whatever kind oh. of labor it is. Wow. Uh, kind of offended people because it was a little too high. <laughs> I guess. Oh, I offend people all the time. They're like, stop doing the voice. I'm like, no, <laughs> the voice stays. <laughs> the only way I can stay sane is to mock these people. Yeah, no, definitely. You're on a roll for offending people. It's really, oh, I love yeah. your, your principled, uh, multi-offense uh, front that you're taking. I will offend everyone. I will tell everyone <laughs> to go fuck themselves. I do not care. <laughs> That's, it's really refreshing. It's really refreshing to see that. Well, it's, in, it's, it's so funny, action. too, because now all the leftists who called me a grifter all year, they don't know what to do with it. So they're like, some of them are like, this proves you were a grifter all along. And I'm like, I'm literally telling off the side you told me I was grifting to. How does yeah. this prove I'm a grifter? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, that's kind of what I wanted. Like, that was the opening thing that I wanted to talk about, uh, about your – the journey over the last 12, 16 months from uh, Democrat yeah. to Trump uh, supporter uh, and then – being launched into that sphere of communication and then how everything there's so much to talk about but oh yeah well and you, you were also funny. at the capitol uh event i was i too. was at the capitol yeah yeah i was just watching the impeachment trial actually um no but you know what's funny too this is actually the perfect day for it because this is the one year anniversary of the day that my original trump rally article went viral oh wow well there we go yeah. i knew perfect. it was like 12 months yeah it was meant to go. be it was fake it's a whirlwind. Are you dizzy or is it full circle? It's still, honestly, it's still the most surreal thing in the world to me. Like, yeah. it, it, it feels like I'm living in an alternate reality. And, and, and I, I can't tell you, several times a week it still happens where I'm like laying in bed at night and I'm like, is this my life? This is my <laughs> life. This is so weird. <laughs> you get a lot of attention and, and a lot of uh, interaction. I guess engagement is the technical term, but you are yeah. you run a very highly... Uh, engaging several platforms and mm -hmm. you're at the intersection of a lot of different conversations and it seems like you're always pushing the line too you're not just uh riding a wave no no i mean like i think you know what i said to myself when i first um jumped into the youtube stuff especially was that i'm gonna say what i think and and you know for better or worse i'm just gonna say what i think and i'm gonna figure the rest of it out so like you know uh, being authentically who i am and saying you know what's on my mind whether or not that's good bad or even fully thought out most of the time because sometimes i'm i'm just thinking out loud you know um that that's always been important to me and it's been it's been one of the oddest experiences because i have so many people who are like um like you know i i i've had people on on this side that are like fighting the same like anti-woke stuff who have said to me like you're you're an inauthentic narcissist and i'm like 
I don't even know how you get to that. Like it, yeah. it's like, or they'll tell me like, you're just trying to be controversial to build an audience. And I'm like, that never would have even occurred to me. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know like what plans you guys are making, but that like, it ne I never wanted to be a YouTuber. Like it never would have occurred to me. <laughs> yeah. I try not to make ad hominems because more often than not, they're just projection. It, that's exactly it. It's like, yeah. I know exactly what you're thinking when you're saying this stuff to me. Yeah. But whatevs, man. Could be worse. You, um, is there anything you want to cover? I do want to get into the way in which uh, you've been talking about the right uh, treating women's mm -hmm. claims. Oh, sorry. Yes. And I don't mean that in a negative sense, just women speaking about mean. experiences of trauma, of sexual harassment, et cetera, yeah. uh, et cetera like that. Mm -hmm. There's a very, I've been building a corpus on gender and uh, the relationship between the sexes and, uh, you know, what it's like to be a man, what it's like to be a woman, what it's like to be treated like a woman, like a man, et cetera, like that. So that would that would fit uh, nicely into that. And it also has political implications, too, because the way that this topic is treated by the different sides, uh, like with what you've been talking about with AOC, she talks about her trauma in the Capitol uh, event. And then she she spoke also about her sexual trauma, too. It was very difficult for me not to see her manipulating that and denigrating yeah. sexual trauma in the process. Uh, so I don't even know how you talk about trauma in a political sphere because everything political is manipulation. So it's really difficult to carve out yeah. a safe space or a non uh, power motivated space in that conversation. We can definitely talk about that. And the position that I've tried to take on it, and, and Lord knows this has been distorted to high heaven, but the position I've taken is that, you know, this is not even about AOC. I don't even care if what she was saying was real. This is not about her. This is about all the people that have experienced this and don't feel like they can even talk about their experiences because what they see is when someone high profile comes forward, everyone and their mother instantly calls them a liar. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's that's what they experience. So if you're seeing someone coming forward and and, you know, everything you see is calling them a liar and you've been, you know, sexually assaulted or raped or whatever. Um, and it, like, why why would you come forward if that's what you're going to meet? Why yeah. would you? Yeah. And that's right. the point. It's not about AOC. I give two flips about AOC. Yeah. Yeah. You made a <laughs> you made a thread in the wake of her confession or whatever that was. And mm -hmm. uh, you spoke very vulnerable. You became very vulnerable. And mm -hmm. you spoke about your own experience about that. And yeah. the pushback that you got, well, it wasn't even pushback, but the uh, response that you got was pretty, I would say, lame. People went after you or tried to oh, yeah. deflect or change that. And could you talk about that and then how you decided to uh, respond to how you were being responded to? Well, I mean, this is not, um, yeah, I mean, this is not like a new experience for me, which is with, with people pushing back on this. I mean, this happened to me 15 years ago, and this has been, this that type of pushback has been very consistent the entire time. And I've spoken about what happened to me publicly before. This was not the first time I talked about it. So I've kind yeah. of gotten used to that. And I think that it's, a, I think that it's important for people who have been through this, who have kind of like processed it and are in an okay place with it to model that for other people who can't. And so the, the universal response that I've gotten for the last 15 years has been, we don't believe you. That's it. And so it was not at all surprising to me that that was the response. But I think when I look at the right and um, the right is so concerned with this stuff happening to children. Right. This is this. Is, and they should be. That's completely wrong. Everyone should be concerned about that. But when but it's it's perplexing to me how when someone goes from 17 to 18, the conversation suddenly changes okay. on the right. And it goes from we believe them. This is awful. We need to do everything we can to get rid of this to you're a liar. And if you don't provide overwhelming proof of what happened to you, we're going to call you a liar publicly. And okay. not feel bad about it at all. And that, that dichotomy is very perplexing to me. Okay. So it's not even uh, a preponderance of evidence. It's not even uh, skepticism or gentle skepticism about claims to be prosecuted elsewhere. It's open. You are a liar. What yeah. you're saying is not true. And assumably they're uh, putting some sort of intent on you. Why would you even bring this up yeah. unless you wanted something? Yeah. And, th and that's exactly it. And it's not even just that. It's that the minute that it gets brought up, like this happened to me, the first response, you know, and I'm talking, I've tried Benjamin. 
I've tried having this conversation across a variety of mediums. I've tried it in person. I have tried it every which way from Sunday. 98% of the time, the very first response is, what about the men who are falsely accused? Okay. And it's just it's you and and there's always an excuse. And if I have the conversation on Twitter, they say, "Oh, well, that's just on Twitter, Carl." And I say, "No, I've had the conversation here, 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 and here. It's the same. It's the same regardless." They don't want to acknowledge that the right does not want to acknowledge that it has a very real problem with how it treats people who have been the real victims of sexual assault. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. It. it- seems like there's this back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, like this vicious cycle, because I'm thinking about the Kavanaugh hearings where Mm -hmm. the left, broadly speaking, weaponized uh, a personal experience of trauma or sexual harassment or sexual assault. It was very Mm -hmm. murky. They went full bore at the 12th hour. And it was very obvious that they were using that. uh, I don't know. To me, it seemed like they were using that very politically. So it can seem to be that the right is weak because they don't treat this issue with the proper respect. And the left is devaluating this issue because they are weaponizing the this issue. I mean, I I, could it be a back and forth in that respect? Yes. And I absolutely. Yeah, I I think there can be a back and forth there. I don't want to spoil everything. But yeah, I mean, there are I. I'm capable of having a very reasonable dialogue on this that looks at it from multiple different angles because there are multiple different angles to to look at it from. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so I guess the question is, how do we go to a place? How do we foster a place where this topic, uh, women, uh, well, anybody discussing their sexual abuse or sexual trauma? How do we treat that in the public sphere? Like, what are the parameters for that? Because believe all women is too far in one direction and then ignore all women is like the response to that. Neither of those things work. So what would you like to see? And where do Um, we need to go? Well, for me, it's about, listen, I completely agree that this is a backlash from the right about what the left did. Right. Life is about balance. If the pendulum swings too far in one direction, it's going to swing back in the other. And the Mm -hmm. people who are the biggest victims in this whole scenario are women who have had very real experiences that cannot get anyone to listen to them and to believe them. And it doesn't matter. Like, I mean, the reality is that a lot of these a lot of these things happen and there is no evidence. There still should be an avenue where women can have these conversations without it, it doesn't. You know, I can accept that. My my assailant never received, never got in trouble. Nothing ever happened to him. I can accept that. What I can't accept is that people have nowhere to go to talk to or any audience to talk to, whether that be one on one or in public or however they want to do it in order to process what happened to them and to get over the trauma of it. That's what I can't accept. And that that is that is what I would like to happen. I mean, my bare minimum. And this is what I said, I think, in that thread is that. The bare minimum I would like to get to is when someone tells you that they've been raped or someone tells you that they've been assaulted, the first response is not, what about all the innocent men? The first response should be, I'm really sorry that happened to you. If I could get that, I would be comfortable. (laughs) Okay. There's also uh, problems with regards to the ways in which Obama-Biden administration pushed Title IX into the campuses, which uh, really... uh, knocked out uh, the ability for, let's say, males who have been accused of sexual harassment to defend themselves. So there is this kind of pendulum problem that both sides are Mm -hmm. feeding into. And I think uh, my my position on this is not political at all. I'm not arguing for any laws to be passed. I'm not arguing for any of that. It's a more human perspective to say, you know what, like, it doesn't Politicians are going to do what politicians do. Do you want to lose your own humanity in the process? Okay. So you would like – this is the other question. Is it proper for trauma to be processed in public? Is that the best place for it to be? Should there not be uh, some sort of private uh, group, small group? Does it necessarily work to work out trauma in public? What happens in public makes its way into private. So based on what people see in the public, when people see that all that ever happens is that people are accused of being liars when they bring this up, that makes its way into private. No one ever – one person believed me. One. Police didn't believe me. 
people it was um it was a coworker who did it to me and so like my my employers didn't believe me no one believed me all that happened in private oh wow okay okay and and, and that's not uncommon that's not uncommon at all well what are the ways in which let's pretend that somebody's listening to this, a, a woman or a man who is uh, trying to figure out how to process this and knows that they can't speak about it in public, wants to avoid being called a liar. How did you go about processing that for you? What were the things that helped you? Or what I adaptations mean, did you make to your behavior to say, I don't give a shit, I'm going to process this whether you believe me or not? Um, I, I, I wouldn't say that I did process it for a long time because all I heard was that I was a liar. Like I, 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 it took me a long, long time to process it. And it took a lot of, um, like I've done a lot of personal development work and inner work. And I work with like shamans and healers and all this crap. And so like, I did a lot of work on myself to be able to process it, but my processing didn't come from anything publicly because everywhere I turned, I was not, there, there was no resource that I could go to. Okay. Okay. Have you thought of setting up a resource? Have you stumbled upon resources since then? Do you think that that, if that's a need, how do you think that that should be formed? I don't know. I mean, this is, this is the quite like, I don't have the answer to this other than, um, I guess what I'm trying to do is appeal to people's humanity, not to jump right to women are liars because a lot of times they're just not. Now, what I have done is, um, you know, I, and, and I think it's worth saying, like I do, I have advocated for men who are falsely accused. I've worked with organizations to get more robust, um, policy set up to fully investigate sexual harassment claims before they, before they fire anyone. And, and that's, that's absolutely appropriate. Um, I don't know the answer though, to, to how to, how to create resources for for women who have been through this who feel like there's nowhere else to go. And I don't know that that's something that I necessarily want to go down because I've just got like too much other crap going on right now. (laughs) But I mean, I I, I guess my first priority is just to get people to stop and think about what they're doing before they say this stuff out loud because it causes, I can't tell you how many DMs I received on Twitter when I was going through that whole tirade. Like people who would never speak publicly about this stuff were DMing me. Thank you for saying something okay. because this is the first time that someone has advocated for this that we've seen. Okay. Um, first time that they've advocate, advocated it from a particular position, uh, like from no, your just, pr- particular just position, or the just first time general? that's the first time that they've seen um, someone call this out publicly as being okay. a problem with how people are addressing it publicly. Okay. Okay. Speaking of trauma, oh, um, our nation, uh, I mean, the Capitol uh, thing is, is uh, apparently very traumatic for a lot of people, not just uh, senators oh, and Congress wow. people, but it is very uh, – it's been built as something very traumatic uh, from the media. I don't know exactly how to read the thing. I'm very wary of the narratives that have been popped up because I know that all those narratives – again, if mm-hmm. a traumatic experience happens – I don't know exactly how to process that politically because every political actor wants a certain end, doesn't want to actually look at the event. You were in the vicinity of that. What Mm -hmm. can I learn from you about the reality of that situation? You know, it was wrong. What was actually the vibe in the air, the whole thing? Yeah, it's funny. I was actually watching. I missed the first part of your conversation with James Lindsay yesterday, but I watched it this morning. And um, you were t- you were talking about this, like the narrative that's been constructed around this. And I was thinking to myself as I was watching it, like, I remember standing there at the Capitol, just watching what was going on. And from my perspective, like, I didn't see any of the violence. All I saw was a giant mass of people who were like standing around and waving flags and chanting. Um, and I'm not like denying that occurred. Obviously, that occurred. I've seen the video, but I didn't see it while I was there and I was really trying to get a good look and I remember standing there thinking that this is going to be totally misconstrued in the media that this was going to be perceived like this was going the narrative they were going to create around this thing is that this is the worst terrorist act in the history of the world and I I remember there was a moment where I had like a very clear like I had that moment of clarity where I was like I'm standing in a moment of history Mm-hmm. Not necessarily because this is the worst thing that's ever happened, but because it's going to be portrayed as the worst thing that's ever happened. Yeah. And what do you what are your feelings about the way in which that actually unfolded? Uh, like this is out of hand. We're in dreamland, this postmodern craziness, like this narrative built. Uh, are you resentful? Are you yeah. angry? Sad? Yeah. Um, 
I have so many mixed emotions about it because for me, like, you know, I've been fighting to get the right to like stand up for themselves for months and months and months and months and months. Right. And so for me, when I was there, when I was looking over this mass of people and again, not seeing any of the violence, my thoughts were, oh, my God, they're finally doing it. The right is finally standing up for themselves in the way that the left does. And I was actually like I, I've said and I stand by this. It mm. was one of the most exquisitely beautiful things I've ever seen in my life to see little old ladies that were dolled up in their fur because they were outside all day storming the Capitol. Like, that was <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and, you know, I've actually, I've talked to a lot of people that were there that day, and so many of them are having this overwhelming sense of guilt for even being in D.C. on January 6th, even if they didn't do anything at all. Now, okay. I don't I don't condone the violence. The violence was horrible. Like if I, I I saw the only thing that I saw that would even get close to it is I saw people like trying to break windows and I saw people inside waving out the windows. But it was like onesies and twosies. It didn't seem like very many people to me. And I was like, oh, my God, that is so stupid. And I was like, what in the and I saw people trying to stop them breaking the windows, too. But. You know, if you take that piece of it and you put it aside, it's like there there were Benjamin, there were 50,000 people on that lawn in minimum. Like there were there maybe maybe were 800 people in the Capitol. They think there was a huge quantity of people who were just there and standing up for what they wanted. And that to me was a very beautiful experience. And it it really pains me that um, these people are all being portrayed as monsters in the media. And as a result, I, I mean, many of the ones I've talked to have this overwhelming sense of guilt about even going that they're still working through. What were they there for? If you can generalize, I think, 50, you know, yeah, I mean, I think that, well, I think it's important to note that there was a scheduled rally that was supposed to be there that was advertised. I mean, like the reason that I went to the Capitol after Trump's speech and I didn't even stay at the ellipse for all of Trump's speech. I went back to my hotel because the sound was horrible and I couldn't even hear it. But um, the reason I went to the Capitol is there was going to be another rally there. That was why it wasn't to storm the Capitol. It wasn't to, you know, go in the building. It was because there was going to be more speakers there. Um, I can't speak for everyone in the crowd. I don't. The sense that I got was that, you know, the, the majority of the people I talked to didn't think the election was going to be overturned, but they wanted to be there. Like, this is what Trump people do. They go to rallies, right? Okay. They go to Trump yeah. rallies. And okay. this was supposed to be like the ultimate Trump rally. And I yeah. think a lot of them didn't didn't actually expect anything to happen, but maybe they were curious about what would. Um, and then, of course, there's that small little contingent that was convinced that it was going to be overturned. Um, but I think that that was probably the smallest contingent of the people I spoke to. Yeah, there is a narrative that's very uh, across the board forwarded by a lot of elite institutions, the media specifically, but um, other institutions uh, softly through social media that uh, paints the Trump supporter as a certain uh, person or a certain, um, let's say, white nationalist, or uh, it paints a bunch of motivations to do everything it can to separate, I would think, Broadly speaking, uh, middle of the road, probably left leaning, liberal, boomer, older Gen Xer people from actually reaching out and seeing their neighbor and seeing all the motivations. Because if you paint those people, which is millions of people, as white nationalists, as deplorable, etc., then you, you break down that communication and therefore that narrative stays uh, where you can paint a Trump rally as, you know, the most vicious thing in mm -hmm. America. So what do you what if you're speaking to uh, like a left leaning liberal boomer somewhere around that age range? What do they need to understand about the people who were there that day? What did they really want? Um, what is it to be a Trump supporter? Is it to be a white nationalist? Is it to be no. some sort of ethno-nationalist or you know, no. ultra-conservative, far-right-wing person? What is it? Not at all. And I mean, if you look at the crowd, the, they, they, were, they were not all white people that were there. That is that is absolutely yeah. just this That goes false. away. I mean, but you, you look at the false. pictures, but people still can't see past that picture because the oh, headline yeah. under it is like uh, Nazis, Nazis, Nazis. So it's... Well, it's funny because, you know, one of the, the photos of the event that's, um, you know, they, they always take it out of context. There is the, the Confederate flag photo right now. I hate that Confederate flags end up at these things. I think it's horrible. But if you look at the at pictures of the whole crowd, which I, I have and I've put on, on Twitter multiple times, 
there there aren't any Confederate flags that you see. They find the one guy that one, and there are wackos at every protest. I mean, yeah. come on, you go to a left wing protest, you're gonna you're gonna find a lot of wackos. Um, there are always people that are gonna do those things, but what they do is they crop into that one single person and they make that seem seem like it's everyone. That's not everyone. I think that that you know what does it mean to be a Trump supporter? I think that Trump supporters. Trump supporters have been emotionally abused by every major institution in this country for the last five years. From the moment that Trump came down that elevator, the media has been in a constant, a constant, um, a constant uh, flow of information to make it seem as though these people are horrible, racist, deplorable people. And that is simply not true. And I think, you know, everyone is reaching, everyone reaches a breaking point at some point. And if you think about this giant mass of people that has been emotionally abused for years, that have been called every name in the book, that have been abandoned by their friends, their family, are at fear of losing their jobs, and they think that this is their last moment to be heard. Because this is this is a this is a group who do, does not feel as though they've been properly represented anywhere, right? They've never been listened to. Their points of view are not considered. They are immediately portrayed as racist wherever they go, and this is like their last opportunity to be heard. Of course, something like this was going to happen. Of course, it was going to snap. And frankly, we're very lucky that it wasn't much worse than it was because the, uh, most of the people there followed the rules. I mean, even if you, it was so funny. My husband was watching the footage on, my husband was at home. He was watching so the footage So it was a on, mostly peaceful protest. <laughs> it was a mostly peaceful protest. But like, and, and I think we can look at something like the Black Lives Matter people and say, like, listen, most of the black, they were in fact peaceful. I support people's right to peacefully protest. Most of them weren't burning down buildings. And that's a fact too. Um, but it's funny because my husband was at home watching C-SPAN as this was all happening, texted him. I was like, FYI, like you might hear some stuff. Um, and so he turned on C-SPAN and what he saw was the Capitol Rotunda where, where Trump supporters were going into the Capitol and they were staying in the ropes. Yeah. They were following the guidelines. And it's like, this could have been so much worse. Like, trust me, if that crowd had wanted to cause damage to the Capitol in the same way that some of those Black Lives Matters protesters wanted to burn down entire cities, we yeah. would not have a Capitol building right now. That was how big the crowd was. And I think that my problem with how it's been portrayed is is not that the violence has been talked about, because we should talk about it. Like, that was that was beyond what was acceptable on any level. Um but they're not offering the full context in that that was a very tiny portion of what happened. And it could have been so much worse if those people had actually been the violent people that they portray them as. Mm -hmm. And the media broadside is being so effective that even people who were there who didn't participate in that are feeling guilty. Uh, they feel like oh. they have blood on their hands. Immense guilt, immense guilt. And not only that, but some of them are losing their jobs. Not even oh. people that weren't even at the Capitol are losing their jobs just for going to Washington, D.C. on January 6th. People wow. that went back, went from the Trump speech back to their hotel room, went, went to take a nap, didn't go to the Capitol, you know, and that's that's awful. We shouldn't wish that on anyone. People There's... should be able to stand up for what they believe in. Yeah, I believe there was a report that Bank of America released uh, information to the government uh, for anybody who was in D.C. that day and actually colluded with the government to route out those people. Thank God I don't bank with Bank of America. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God you're you're also uh, self-employed, too. Which is oh, I mean, for real, benefits. I wouldn't be able to do any of this stuff if I wasn't self-employed. Do you have any insight into now that Biden is president and now that Trump has uh, semi-retired so far, we, we don't know what he's going to do specifically, but what's going to happen to all those voices? Um, because it seems like this event is being used to cut, cut them out, completely cut mm -hmm. them out from the conversation. They're not they're not going to die. They're going to be there. What are they going to do? No, I mean, I think we're going to see. I think there's already efforts to primary people like Liz Cheney, who are, you know, actively working against Trump's impeachment. If you look at her approval ratings in Wyoming, they're basically in the toilet. Like Liz Cheney is not going to keep her seat after this. So I don't think that um, I don't think that the MAGA movement is going anywhere. I think, OK, hmm. there's what I think is going to happen. And then yeah. there's what I hope happens. Yeah. What I hope happens is that the populist on the right start realizing that they have more in common with the populist on the left 
than they do with the rhinos that are in power in the Republican Mm -hmm. Party. That's what I hope happens, because I think, listen, we can talk about media narratives all day, every day. But the reality is that the media hates all of us. They hate all of us. This is not just about people on the right. Their their job is to keep people divided. And that's true of media on the right. That's true of media on the left, too. I mean, this is true of everyone. If you look at someone like Newsmax and OAN, listen, like I might I might watch them every once in a while. But the reality is that it's their job now to piss off the right, just like it's MSNBC's job and CNN's job to piss off the left. They want to keep us warring with each other. And what we need to realize is that we are not each other's enemies. We have more in common than we don't. I had a Black Lives Matter activist on my channel a couple weeks ago, and he talked about how he views Antifa as QAnon. It's like the QAnon of the left. And that was the first time anyone in Black Lives Matter had said that to me. And I was like, you think these guys are crazy, too? Like, there's there's common ground to be had there among the peaceful people. And what, what we need to do is come together and realize that the Republicans in power and the Democrats in power, they're the same. They're the same party. It is not us versus each other. It is us versus them. That's what I hope happens. Do I think it will happen? I really don't know. I think it's too early to tell. Um, I think we got to get past this impeachment trial first because I think Trump is going to start speaking up more after this is done. Um, because he Whether really Pete impeached or not impeached. Oh, I don't think, think he's going to get impeached. Yeah, I, I, but I yeah. think he's going to speak up either way. Okay, um, either way, he's not going to care what they're going to do. No, Trump doesn't care, please. Like, <laughs> Trump didn't even show up to his own impeachment trial. He doesn't care. He's, he was golfing yesterday. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> he's like, not my monkeys, not my circus. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> huh. But we'll see. I mean, I I have questions about whether or not um, the populist movement is going to really take hold in the Republican Party. I think it could. I absolutely think it could. Um, Will it? I don't know, man. We'll have to see. What do you could you help me understand what you mean by populist? What is that? (sighs) Yeah. So what I mean by populist is more focused on things that are actually going to help average everyday Americans. Like I think Trump was the leader of a populist movement. And I also think BLM is like a populist movement, too, by the way. Like, I mean, that's that's about like, you know, and the funny thing about them. And again, I think they're they're like the BLM activists that I've talked to are actually they're they're as annoyed at the people that are looting and burning stuff as like, you know, as as I am. They don't like that stuff either, because what they want is just they don't want cops killing innocent people. That's all they want. And it's funny because like like I don't think do, do you want cops killing innocent people? I don't want cops killing innocent people. No. So we have the same goal. We yeah. literally have the same goal. So yeah. I think like we've got these populist movements that are focused on like what average everyday people need. The left tends to look at it from like universal health care and, you know, universal basic income and that sort of thing. I think the right looks at it as like jobs. They want job security. They want manufacturing jobs like energy jobs, what have you. But things that are actually like kitchen table issues, I guess, is maybe the best way to put it. Kitchen table mm-hmm. issues on both sides. Okay. Do you think that we can return to kitchen table talking uh, before we get to the issues that are spoken at the kitchen table? And how how do you you think that? that? Well, can we do you think that the arc of public debate could be bent towards civility at this point? And what are you trying to do to do that? If do you think that you have any role in that? I I don't mean that accusatorily. I just no, no, no. I know. I, I know what you're saying. Um, I don't know. I used to think so. Uh oh. Sorry. Cat walks That's in. It's so cold. Oh, it's like there's a cat. <laughs> um, uh, no, I mean I think that I used to I used to have more faith that we could return to civil discourse than I do now. Oh. Okay. Um, I still I still think civil discourse is possible, but I think that um, you know what I'm trying to do is like. You know, at least for my part, like if I have someone on the left on my channel, if I'm having a public discussion with like a lefty, I don't debate them. I will not engage in like a back and forth like gotcha. I'm going to dunk on you debate. So I just don't think it's healthy. So I can definitely contribute that. I think there are there are people on the left that I think are really, really reasonable and want to find common ground. I think the the sad thing is, though, is that just these conversations are not happening. And I think part of the reason they're not happening, to be quite frank, is covid is like the left has like locked themselves away and won't have conversations with people in person. 
They won't like they're legitimately scared of this. I don't know how you feel about this, but like the people that I've talked to, like are legitimately scared to go out of their house wearing like even if they're wearing a mask or what have you, they're scared to travel. They're scared to have these interactions in person. And I think like the, the, the impact that the covid lockdowns and everything now taking place virtually, this cannot be understated because. Um, you know, I have I, I still do on occasion my actual job. And so all of my clients hate Zoom now. They hate it. They will not use it. They are so sick of it. So all their all their communications are happening over email and Slack. And this inherently is inhibiting that in, interpersonal communication. And I see okay. the same thing happening in politics. Right. Where if all our communication is taking place over Facebook posts and text message and email and Twitter, which is a hellscape of epic proportion, like we're not going to be able to have civil dialogue. It is not possible over any of those mediums. And so if things are not opening back up and Biden just said yesterday, it's going to be a whole other year before we we have to wear our masks for another year in order to be healthy. I don't know where we go from there. Okay, And. So what you're pointing to is that the Zoom, Skype technology, the podcast technology is not sufficient to uh, reestablish civil discourse because it has to be embodied. I don't I think it's possible, but I think that people are so sick of using Zoom and Skype right now that yeah. that it's it makes it a lot harder like if you're like oh my god i have to put on i have to look nice to be on zoom oh like people are <laughs> hunkered down man they're wearing sweatpants all day they're like they're acting like depressed people honestly like they're not showering <laughs> they're not like it, it's it's crazy and if they're not willing to get on camera and actually have a mm-hmm. conversation with someone if they're like why can't i just send you an email like that's yeah. not gonna help yeah uh there was this uh hbo max uh movie that came out uh where and i just watched the trailer but it started on zoom and i like had this like bile comes <laughs> like, up in yeah. my mouth I'm like i don't want to watch a movie like, that's what i do all day <laughs> and then i have to convince people to watch me do this all day <laughs> i know it's like oh my god this is, this is the world no, mm-hmm. no. I mean, I hope. I have hope that it can, you know, because I think we always should have hope. I'm not completely blackpilled, but I think yeah. things are going to get worse before they get better. Okay. What are some of the uh, inflection points? Uh, I don't even know if that's the right t- term, uh, but what, what do you think are some of the issues that we could probably highlight that the, the populist on the left and the right or right leaning, left leaning could find common ground on? What are some of the mm-hmm. points where we could find stable ground? I think that no, like, well, like I said, I think that um, no one wants the police killing innocent people. The The, the point of difference, though, is that okay. we, we, we agree on the goal. The problem is that we do not agree about whether or not it's a problem. Right. Hmm. The left thinks it's this giant, humongous problem. The right is like, ah, proportionally, it doesn't happen, whatever. Like what we need to do is put that argument aside and say no one wants the police killing innocent people. Like, we agree fundamentally on the goal, and then we go back from there. I mean, this is like basic conflict resolution, right? You don't you don't bicker about the things that don't matter if you agree on the end result. Okay, okay. okay. All right. So police reform, uh, broadly speaking, yeah. is one. And I think I think also that, I mean, uh, that that the, the again, like I the BLM activists that I've talked to in the last couple of weeks, and I'm not talking about their leadership. I'm not talking about the organization. I'm talking just average everyday people. Yeah. They don't like the violence any more than we do. They don't like the violence coming from their own ranks. They think it dilutes their message. They don't like the violence coming from Antifa. They think it dilutes their message. So if we can agree that violence is bad, political violence is bad, we all are going to denounce that, and we can agree that we don't want the cops killing innocent people, I mean, that to me seems to be a pretty good place to start in at least mm-hmm. recognizing, maybe not you know, forming a new political coalition right away, but at least in recognizing we're not each other's enemies. We don't have, like, the left does not support violence in the way that I think some people think that they do. Mm-hmm. It seems like you are in a particularly uh, keen position to be able to recognize these points of uh, cohesion or points Mm -hmm. of possible harmony because of your trajectory over the last 12 months. What are some of the things that you've learned about the right that the right needs to know about itself that it could change? Mm. Um, and I also think, too, it's important to note that like one of the things that I did um, a lot of before COVID was I facilitated communication style workshops. Right. So I'm yes. very good at like at recognizing when people are talking past each other. Yeah. Um, 
what can the right do to facilitate this? I think that the right has got to um, remove the chip from its shoulder, which is harder said than done. And I understand that. And again, I, 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 I don't, um, you know, the right has been emotionally abused for the last five years. That's, that is a very real thing. And it, it, and, you know, I don't want to diminish other kinds of trauma, but that's, that's a trauma for a lot of people to feel like everyone around you does not understand you. It's a really, really tough thing to deal with. Um, Mm. but I think that they, if they want to, if they want to resolve this with the left, Maybe not with the politicians, but with with average everyday people, they've got to get rid of the chip on their shoulder. They've got to say, you know what, it's worth showing up and at least trying to have the conversation without demonizing these people because they're average everyday people just like me. They're just trying to do the best they can a lot. I also think. And this is a problem of existing on the Internet and like spaces like you and I do, because we we are we're surrounded by very high information people. Right. Mm -hmm. Well. Like, spoiler alert, not everyone is insane like we are, right? (laughs) Most people are just, like, trying to live their lives, and they go to work, and they come home, and they crack open a beer, and they kick their feet up, and they watch whatever they watch on TV, and, you know, hopefully don't get sucked into the YouTube stuff. But they're just average. They don't don't live in this stuff all day, every day, like we do. And I think that um, the people that I'm interacting with um, that are more independent or right-leaning, they have this expectation that everyone is going to be seeing the same things they are. And that's just not realistic. We mm-hmm. have to meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. Your desire to find some common ground has got to be greater than your desire to continue fighting. And I think that there's also, I mean, we can talk about how addicted the left is to outrage all day, every day, and they absolutely are. But that's on the right, too. The right okay. is also addicted to this. And so our desire to find common ground has got to be greater than our desire to be outraged at every single turn. Yeah. I um, have decided to give up uh, doing anything on Facebook except for c- connecting with my family because I, I experimented yeah. with being political earlier this summer or earlier last year. And it just fell flat every time because I was speaking to people who I knew but don't know me based on how they discovered me through my work. And yeah. I would try to define what CRT is and why it's wrong. I'd try to define what equity is, why it's wrong. And people only saw the rhetoric. They only saw a, a rhetoric that I was I was pinging these right-wing talking points. And it's really difficult to you know, to kind of encapsulate all the, you know, hours and hours of work I've done to explore why these ideas are bad. It's hard to distill that into a point uh, where it doesn't sound like a talking point. It doesn't sound like I'm playing some sort of left-right game. And I don't know if, and so it just didn't seem like Facebook is the proper medium from a person-to-person perspective um, to convince the other people that I know. That the stuff that I'm seeing that's rising up and is taking over institution after institution is actually really, really bad for our country. It's really mm-hmm. difficult for me to to operate in that sphere. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't even really use Facebook anymore because they're about to ban me for po- stuff I posted years ago. So, like, you know, whatever. I don't really <laughs> yeah. even use it anymore. <laughs> I keep getting restrictions on my account for stuff I posted months ago. I'm like, where were you? Um, yeah. But no, yeah. I think I think the point you're bringing up though is not just like I think it's I think it's absolutely true of Facebook, but it's true of everywhere. And I think that one of the reasons I'm having a really hard time right now in seeing um, seeing a path forward in terms of creating civil dialogue is that every single person is seeing everything as a political talking point. I mean, this I ran into this with the AOC stuff where I could not I wasn't even saying AOC's name. And it was just like the people construed every because I that was like a perfect Mm. storm of circumstance because I had already been lit up on this issue and I was talking about it for a couple days prior. And then the AOC stuff hit and I was like, boom. Yeah, I was already lit up on this. Um, And it was like all of a sudden I couldn't even have a conversation around, you know, women who are sexually assaulted without people bringing AOC into it because when I wasn't even speaking AOC's name. And so I think that it is a very, um, you know, it's a, it's a fair observation to say that like when everything becomes a political talking point, all that does is it pushes us into our tribes and we're not open to new information. We're not open to discussion. We're not open to dialogue. We're not even open to thinking like sane human beings. And the only people that can change that are just like it's it's you and me and and every single person who's engaging these concepts to say that I want to be 
I want to find common ground more than I want to be a cheerleader for my tribe. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It. I'm just thinking about this rhetorically, and the rhetorical maneuver is to impersonalize the information and just bring it back to first principles. Just go back to first principles and almost just kind of go back to religious talking points about love your neighbor kind of things like like yeah. talk about very broad things and uh, bring to light uh, i was speaking with some uh, people who are working on a project to help uh, it's called counterweight and it's run by oh, Helen I know counterweight. Yeah, yeah. and other people and they were they're, they're dev- designing a website a, a portal for people who are watching critical social justice ideology as they call it advancing in different institutions i told them that you'd be an excellent person to, to reference oh, cool. and, and to uh, work with uh, on an institutional level. But they, they're, I was talking with their social media team and they're like, well, what do we call this critical social justice thing? And I'm like, well, be really careful when you come up with the term, because that, that every time you invent a new term, that's the, that's the circle that everybody marches around. If it's a negative term, if it's something that you're all against, then you guys will become a tribe that's in a warrior mm-hmm. stance constantly and figuring out all the negative things in that and you stop to see everything in that container social justice let's say that is good that is positive you only see the negative things so i i gave them this basic rule of thumb if you don't want to be against things if you don't want to solely be against things then you have to say four positive things to every negative thing you have to dilute the negativity dilute the criticism which is really difficult in an atmosphere where you get attention for being critical you gain audience you gain you you go across the board you just get shared and shared and shared for every every uh every negative thing is going to get 10 times the amount of attention to every positive thing you're going to do but you still have to do that work of being positive being positive being positive oh yeah well i kind of wish i had talked to because I'm working on a project myself called Actively Unwoke, where I'm creating a whole little website with resources for people to actively fight back against this stuff, yeah, which is yeah. kind of similar to what they're doing, but it's it's going to be very... My whole thing is like, we need to take it from like... I think that what James and Helen have done is like awesome, um, no. but I find it to be very academic and I think yes. average people have a really hard time understanding it. So what I'm trying to do is like take it and put it into average person. Here's what you need to know. Like, yeah. even if you're just confused about what this, what, like, what is this person talking about? Here is what they're actually saying. Yeah. And how do you do that? How have you done that? Um, because I think when we first interacted, one of our mm-hmm. first interactions was that, yes, this stuff's really bad, but what we need is the uh, you know corporate brochure of this stuff. We don't need a book on this stuff. We need the uh, motivational poster version of this stuff. Mm-hmm. How do you reduce this stuff into a motion, uh, motivational poster without it becoming a talking point? What are some of the, the phrases that you come up with and the methods that you use to keep it from becoming clear? cliche becoming too stilted Seems yeah like very i mean i i think task. i'm I, it is but i'm 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 figuring that out right now i don't have a perfect answer to it yeah. um right now but i think the goal is like if average people you know i was talking with james just the other day on like dm and we were talking about how um you know, like, how do we fight back against this? And I think yes. the, the, the best way to fight, but the, well, really the only way we have left to fight back against it is if the average everyday people understand what it is when someone, a diversity trainer comes into their workplace and, you know, uh, makes them apologize for their racism. Like, what is it like I, that? I imagine that like for people who don't know what's going on, that would be a very jarring experience to have all of a sudden the stranger come in and make you apologize for being racist. Well, what is actually going on and what do you do when you find yourself in that situation? Um, I don't hmm. have a perfect answer for it right yet, but I'm working on it. <laughs> Do you have any clues? Because that's a that's a really good uh, question, because not only are they I think that the way that social media has been working out or just society has been working out since last June is to steep everyone in this understanding that white people are inherently guilty for the sins of America, that America is stained irrevocably by racism and that the first step is to apologize. So I think that people are already primed up to go through this ritual. But what is behind that? 
apologizing to a freaking HR representative person, which I just think is it's it's just out of bounds. It's like some sort of religious uh, mm-hmm. thing going on that shouldn't be going on. It just pisses me off just on a personal level. But there's something else going on. There's a societal manipulation that's going on when you're being forced to apologize for your skin or for the sins of America. What what and that that's a really hard stance. Maybe I'm coming at it too hard because it's triggering no. me right now. But w- what do you think is going on in that <laughs> moment? No, I don't think it's a hard stance at all. I think, you know, I'm I'm working on a book right now and the, the introduction to it is literally called You're Not a Racist. And it, it's going through all these scenarios. If you believe this, you are not a racist. No, let me confirm again. You are not a racist. And okay, the reason yeah, I'm doing okay. it that way is that... Like counter conditioning in a way. Yeah. And, and I think, and it's not even that. It's I think that I think that people instinctively know that this stuff does not pass the smell test. However, the danger of saying that is that someone's going to call you a racist, right? And that's like the very worst thing that we can be called. And a couple things need to happen. Number one, we need to get people to a place where they're not afraid of being called a racist, that that they know that they know not not necessarily from like you're going to lose your job perspective, but that they know internally that it's not true. And I think that this is this is the insidious part of all of this because it gaslights people into thinking that they're bad people for recognizing bullshit. Like we know we know this is bullshit. Like you look at people like Jody Shaw and what she's doing, like she recognized it. She has she works with a whole bunch of people who are recognizing it, but they're not saying it out loud. And so I think what I want to do is to give people permission to to acknowledge what they they instinctively already know that it is and know that that there are a lot of people out there just like them. I have to believe that and I think the data backs this up. I think the people that really buy into this stuff are a small proportion of people. I think the larger proportion is that people who recognize that this is absurd and stupid. And I, I did corporate training for like a long time, right? No one believes corporate trainers. I can always tell exactly who buys into my stuff and who doesn't, even though my stuff was like much better than this stuff, right? Um, but like people don't buy into it. They know it's nonsense, but they're afraid to say it. We need to give them permission to say it. We need to make it safe for them to say it, knowing that. And the reason they're afraid to say it is not just that they're afraid they'll lose their job. It's because they think they're the only one thinking it. Yeah, that's the biggest problem. Show them that they're not. Yeah, there's a breaking down those silos. There's this uh, article that came out last week and Holly Math Nerd on Uh, Twitter wrote an excellent piece about this piece that appeared in the uh, LA Times, and I'll link Holly's piece in the description. Uh, but in in the LA Times, there was this woman who whose neighbors were Trump supporters, and they plowed her driveway. And yeah. she goes through this process of, well, how how do I how does that forgive them for what they've done to my country and and how they've betrayed uh, my country? And there's this really intractable mentality about this anti-Trumpist uh, not being able to see their neighbors who did something humanely as humans. Like there's this you you are because you dehumanized people by voting for this guy. You were no longer, you're depersoned. You dehumanized in my mind, therefore I'm going to deperson you back. And it's yeah. like, and how to just breaking down that mindset. It has to happen on the right with the chip on the shoulder, and it has to happen on the left where people have to let go of that completely insane rhetoric where they think they're, they're, they're traumatized on behalf of uh, who they think Trump and Trump supporters have traumatized. Now, I'm sorry, I should say that perhaps there has been trauma that Trump and uh, his uh, administration has caused on people. I don't know, but there is a very strong belief in the heads of a lot of people on the left that Trump has done that. And so Mm -hmm. they are traumatized uh, surrogately uh, for this trauma. And they have to give that up, too. Have you seen any way or have you seen any way to push the needle, to move the needle, to open up people who are anti-Trumpist, to get a little bit uh, more uh, trusting of their neighbor, of those 74 million people that voted for Trump or 71 million people? Mm. Well, not on any sort of scale. 
Um, I think that, you know, they're they're dug in right now. And I don't think it's possible, especially while this impeachment nonsense is still going on. Um, Maybe in the future, maybe once like Jim Acosta was just tweeting yesterday about Trump playing golf. Like, why do you care if Trump is playing golf right now? Trump is a private citizen. And until we get over this, this attitude that they're I mean, they're they're addicted to outrage. Right. They're the only ones that can fix this. Now, I don't what I suspect is going to happen is once the Trump stuff kind of dies down. They're going to turn on each other because where else do they have to go? They control everything. Now, what does this have to do with um, with the right? Well, I mean, like if they turn on each other, then the right is kind of like they're they're not even going to be paying attention to what's going on on the right. So I don't know. I think that mm. um, I don't have a lot of hope for where the left is right now, because I think that, you know, I'm I'm not going to fix the left, Benjamin. <laughs> <I'm not. laughs> I think the very best thing that I can hope for right now and something I'm actively actually working on as of yesterday, apparently, is we need to get like that. We need to put as many legal boundaries around what they're doing in regards to critical race theory and getting that okay. into institutions as possible. Yeah. Like we, we need to basically, for lack of a better term, we need to build a wall around this let them scream in their little playpen all that they want let them go after each other all that they want but i think where the focus needs to be is again on like protecting average everyday people from getting okay. pulled into this nonsense i don't know if that makes sense no it does no that 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 does and appealing to the common man uh or woman or person mm-hmm. uh, is still a very val- valid tactic and not every populist is a demagogue Populism uh, construed as you've construed it as serving through as uh, as best, most uh, tangible means as possible, the most people as possible is a common goal that will uh, provide a surge as long as those common people aren't at each other's throats uh, by some sort of uh, false reality that's been pushed on them or their own addiction to being outraged, which Mm -hmm. is pushed on them by them. Yeah. And I think, too, I mean, I, the, the overarching theme of everything that I'm talking about right now, it really ironically hinges on personal responsibility, which is the right's big thing. Right. They want you know people to be personally responsible for their lives and their experiences. But people also have to be personally responsible for their perspectives. We cannot expect politicians to come in and save us if we are not doing what we need to do first. And so I think, you know, the message I think that I have that is over everything is that mm. it doesn't matter what anyone in Washington, D.C. is doing. It doesn't matter what anyone in your state house is doing. You are in control of what you are contributing to the situation. Are you contributing in a way that is going to lead to finding more common ground? Are you con- yeah. contributing in a way that is not going to feed the outrage addiction? Are you seeing your, your fellow neighbor as a human being first rather than as a a um a a elephant or a donkey you know that's where we have to start because the politicians are not going to save us and if people are expecting the politicians to save us rather than doing it for yourself you're going to be really disappointed in the outcome yeah yeah i'm going to reuse one of my own phrases that i've this will be the third time in 24 hours but (laughs) be sure you're washing more dishes than clanging pots like yeah, get to work, uh, and you, you make make some noise when you need to. But but really, uh, the the proof is in the pudding, and and uh, actually solving real problems that are human sized, uh, and and making human connections is going to do a lot more in the long run. Uh, once that picks up, than uh, existing on this abstracted plane of political scuffle. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, go clang pots on Twitter because ain't no problems going to get solved on Twitter. Like, if you need to get that out of your system, go. I get that out of my system all day, every day on Twitter. That is the only use I have for Twitter is, like, getting mm-hmm. aggressive and fighting with people because I can't do that when I'm actually trying to solve a problem. Because you right? love people too much in reality. Yeah, I mean, I do. I care. I care way more about people than I reasonably should, all things considered. (laughs) So what are some projects up your sleeve coming up soon uh, that we can uh, advertise to people that they can uh, catch your drift on? 
I think the the biggest thing is like um uh, I, I mean I have my locals community where I'm yes. actively like I do Zoom calls like twice a week with them that last for like two or three hours each. Oh, honestly, wow. okay. yeah, they're yeah. like they're a big meaty Zoom calls, but it's like they last so long because the entire thing is around giving people a place where they can express themselves, where yeah. they don't feel like they're going to be judged or yelled at or called a racist or anything like that. I think that for me, individual expression, standing up for what you believe in, is always been my most important thing and helping people to do that. So that's what I do um, in my locals community. Um, let's see, what other things am I working on? I'm working on banning critical race theory in New Hampshire. That's really oh, exciting. across yes. the board. Yes. Well, at least in, in state contractors. So um, there was a bill that was introduced uh, in New Hampshire, HB 544, that I got wind of. And um, I was supposed to testify at the committee hearing yesterday, but they ran out of time. So I'm going back next week. Okay. But um, the other thing I'm doing is I, I reached out to the guy who introduced the bill, who's being very, very brave because he's already getting all this heat coming down on him. And mm -hmm. so I offered to help him. And so now I'm going to be helping out with that. Um, Rufo's going be helping out with that james Lindsay is going to be helping out with that i think um so that's that's actually really exciting and in, in new hampshire that has a that has a good chance of passing there's actually a lot more there's a lot of support for it um like i i did a little survey yesterday to figure out like if this was actually a real thing or not and it turns out that there are there's a lot of support for it and also in new hampshire the republicans control everything hmm. so the democrats can make a lot of noise the biggest mm -hmm. thing though is um Again, going back to like educating people, the biggest thing that uh, I'm worried about is making sure the Republicans in New Hampshire understand what they're voting for. Because right now they don't. They do not understand really what critical race theory is. There's still a really big disconnect, again, between people like you and me and just average everyday people. I mean, looking, go back even to the debates between Trump and Biden. Neither of them could explain what it was, right? No. Yeah. So that's that's the piece that I'm working on right now. Okay. And so that that you did post a video uh like a trial run for your testimony. Of my testimony? And, yes. Yeah. I and did. so what other resources are you making? Is this like a web-based thing or something like that? Yeah, I'm I'm working Can on a project. New Hampshire's get it New Hampshireites? Can they get involved somehow? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, they absolutely can. They can they can write into their representatives, make sure they know they're in support of it. Right now, um what, right now who the representatives are hearing from are people that are opposed to this bill. They're calling it racist. They're calling it, one woman's even calling it transphobic when it doesn't even deal with trans people at all. But everything is when everything is transphobic, nothing is transphobic. Ben. <laughs> <laughs> it's something a little off about these people who just call everything a phobe. Everything uh, like, is a phobe. Yeah, but no, everything's but... anti-blackness and transphobia. And you're like, well, we're talking about offense. There's nothing going on with either of those. Yeah, anyways, it's 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 literally not mentioned in the text of the bill. Um, but no, but like like who they're hearing from are people on the left who are outraged at this racist bill, and the bill is not racist, and people need to understand that, and the right needs to speak up. This is again, yeah. this is why in my locals I focus so much on expression and just standing up for what you believe in, and why hmm. I thought that that the you know the Capitol riot from my perspective, not seeing any of the violence was beautiful because people were standing up and saying what they believed in. What my experience experience on the right hmm. is that they don't do that. Well, so every time that they grow a spine, they're called uh, the worst names in the book over and over and over again. Yeah, and but the they're going to be called that anyway. Okay. They're going to be called that. Like you are going to be called a racist anyway. So you might as yeah. well stand for something and be a racist, then stand for nothing and be a racist. Those well, are your stand choices. for something and actually not be a racist and be called a racist. Let's put it well, that way. That's probably a better way to put it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this little, I didn't want that little clip to go out there. <laughs> well played. Well played. So we plugged your locals. You, you have a awesomely active youtube channel and yeah. uh you have a twitter and you also have your business that every once in a while you get involved in and every you knit. For a while. yeah do you have like knit. a knitting community uh community or you already blew that one up right you already like, I, took the it, tnt to no i mean it's it's actually funny so um so i i never really had a knitting community i was more so on instagram with people knitting on instagram right um yeah 
But it's funny, a couple months ago, I started this group on Ravelry, which is the big website that banned all Trump supporters. Um, yeah. I started this group called Crafting Rebels. And that one of the rules of the group was don't mention the T word. Like I was doing it completely within their terms of service. But I was like, I, 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 I just want this group to be here so that they know that we're here. And the group within like a week got like 450 people to join it. And everyone was just talking about knitting. And it was just yeah. like, there was like really no there there. And then what happened is Ravelry banned a conservative knitter group. And so all of them came oh, over into yeah. my group. Okay. Yeah. And Interesting. it was, and, and, but like, again, the rule was, and I kept reminding people do not talk about, I didn't even say his name, the dreaded T word to stay within their terms of service. Well, yeah. apparently that wasn't good enough for Ravelry because they, uh, they one day just deleted the group just unilaterally. They didn't even notify me as the group owner at all. And they restricted my profile. And oh. like they, the, the excuse they gave for restricting my profile was that I had things that were against their terms of service in my profile, which is funny because I didn't even have any of the things filled out in my profile because I don't really use Ravel. I didn't use Ravelry to like talk to people i just used it for patterns right yeah. but they said i was somehow violating their terms of service um with my profile um and they specifically said my profile picture which was a picture with me and one of the most famous knitting designers in the world who happens to be a white man but oh, you know maybe that was it it was it i had a, I had a photo with with you know stephen west in my profile oh, which geez, the nearest will know it, but, it just it never stops. I think that no. that is a good uh, red pill vector because the censorship just keeps on happening and happening and happening. They just keep on coming down on conservatives over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And I, I'm not even a conservative. Right. Like, yeah. I'm a liberal. And and so I reached out to them. I was like, why is my account restricted? There's literally nothing in my profile and my pictures of Stephen West. Why is my account restricted? Never heard back. Never so back. I still do knit because, as it turns out, <laughs> we don't need communities to knit. You can just get some yarn and some needles. And you can just knit. And the, the weather's <laughs> the wind's going to blow either way, so you might as well get yourself a shawl. That's what I'm saying, man. I'm, I'm get yourself a sweater, a shawl, scarf, hat, scarf. Uh, do you yeah. have uh, Do you have like a, a compendium compendium of designs out there, like uh, Carlin Borisenko, uh book? Uh, is, there, is there a book in the works? Of there's the, not of the knitting. I wish there was, maybe someday. Um, but there's not not for knitting. Um, mostly, I post my knitting stuff on my Instagram. So, okay, all right. Well, we'll link all those things to the bottom of this video and podcast, so people can connect with Carlin and join her on Locals and YouTube and Twitter. Uh, thank you very much for your time, lovely yeah. lady of the North Hampshires or the of the, the New Hampshire, wherever I am today. Thank you, Benjamin. <laughs> I'm glad to be I'll, on your channel again. <laughs> I will end it there. I had a question off the air to ask you. Oh, good. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.